0: Welcome for another episode of Backrow Center, a podcast about movies from Filmstreams, Omaha's nonprofit organization dedicated to the presentation and discussion of film. I'm Filmstreams Communications Director Patrick Kinney and I'm joined again by Filmstreams Artistic Director Diana Martinez and our Development Manager Dana Ryan. Hello again, colleagues.
1: Hello. Hello.
0: For this March 2021 edition of Backrow Center, we're doing an episode that is in some ways overdue. Here we've been for six months talking on and on and on about all kinds of films and performances, and you'd be well within your rights to ask yourself, who are these people, and how dare they, and what gives them the right? Well, we aren't gonna stop talking, but we are going to tell you a little bit about who we are, at least as movie watchers. Meet us in the best seats in the house, back row center, for a discussion about our formative films. For this episode, we are joined by a special guest, Filmstream's White's fellow, Kenneth Laster. Welcome, Kenneth. Hello, happy to be here. Before we jump right in, a little bit about the methodology behind this exercise. A few weeks ago, we all created a list of 10 to 15 films that we considered formative. Now, formative was fairly open to interpretation. Basically, any movie that had helped shape our taste in cinema, influenced us creatively, made us, to use a grandiose but appropriate term, We also made a distinction to not make a distinction between good or bad films, lowbrow or highbrow. In other words, no such thing as guilty pleasures here. Without further ado, I'd like to invite Diana to present her list and tell us a bit about it.
1: All right, I have 12 films. I have 12 to 15 films. There is a range. Um, Number one. No Particular Order. The Lion King, 1994. Uh, Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette from 2006. Uh, Enter the Dragon, the Bruce Lee film from 1973. Harmony Corinne's Spring Breakers from 2012. Stand and Deliver from 1988. Um, Rocky four from 1985. Flashdance from 1983. Tiny Furniture, the 2010 Lena Dunham film. All That Heaven Allows, um, the Douglas Zirk version from 1955. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, yes, the Disney version from 1996, Funny Farm from 1988, and Heartburn from 1986, and any adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma, which includes Gwyneth Paltrow's Emma from 1996, The New Emma from 2020, and Clueless from 1995, but also any adaptation, TV adaptation, film adaptation, give me Emma all the time.
0: Um, so I think we're going to take turns then talking about, um, we all picked films from everybody's list to watch Mm -hmm. for this episode. And, uh, I want us to talk, uh, with Diana about those movies that we watched and, uh, have a little bit of a conversation about that. And I'll start, um, I actually, I had a great time going through all these lists, but this one especially had like a weird little moment of kismet. Um, I watched uh three films from your list i think but mm-hmm. two of them ended up being a perfect pairing because i watched um tiny furniture for the mm-hmm. first time mm-hmm. i rewatched it for the first time since 2010 uh, which is a wild experience i watched it on the criterion channel
1: mm-hmm. and right
0: after that was if have you seen this there's a featurette on the criterion channel i have it that's lena dunham and nora efron in conversation together putting tiny furniture yeah. and heartburn into conversation with each other, so I followed that up with Heartburn, which I'd never seen before. Um it's So good. It was amazing. It was great. I loved. I loved Heartburn. Um, but there I are guess... a lot
1: of writers on this list. Yes. Right, because like Funny Farm, Heartburn, Tiny Furniture. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, definitely some creative people's on here.
0: Yeah, I mean it's like. And like a lot of like lifestyle as Mm -hmm. well. Was it aspirational? I mean, did that, um, how do you think that warped you?
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I've said this before, but for me, like as a little like Latina girl growing up and you know, the suburbs, but a very diverse suburbs of Southern California. Like there was nothing more exotic to me than like what white people upper east side New York. <laughs> like what is that? I don't even understand it. Um, but Heartburn, interestingly, is like the latest addition to this list. Um, I actually didn't even see it until after 2012, which I think is actually the most recent film on this list, Spring Breakers. I saw it after that um and for me it really resonated with me because i unfortunately because of the circles that i (laughs) am around um have been around a lot of men and have unfortunately dated men who fancied themselves geniuses oh boy yeah um and i think this film is totally like about that it's about jack nicholson and all he will not sacrifice their relationship and everything that Meryl Streep's character sacrifices for the relationship and I think that's something that like I'm sure a lot of women can relate to but like a lot of women in like creative industries like the way that we think about our creativity um is different and isn't burdened by this like you know mad genius having to act badly um trope as as how men seem to think of brilliance um
2: producer Josh here uh I just want to say that I was so happy when you said Heartburn because uh this is one of my favorite movies and no one ever talked about it
1: it's so good it's a Mike Nichols film um written uh by Nora Ephron so like how could that like not be good
0: it's such an obvious combination Mike Nichols and Nora Nora Ephron Mm -hmm. um and yeah I, I mean I had never even heard of it until I saw it in your list and was not going to watch it at all until that featurette popped up. Um, and oh, I'm so glad because it's maybe, I mean, at the beginning I was a little like, what's Mike Nichols doing with Nora Ephron? I mean, the movies that she directed of her own screenplays are so different tonally. They're more um, yeah. fun mm-hmm. and uh, lighthearted, I want to say than this Mike Nichols movie, which is very composed and dour and Mike Nichols. Um, mm-hmm. But for some reason it just works, it works so well. And I am like kind of thrilled by a Carly Simon movie moment at this point. Like her, her soundtrack, <laughs> her, like she, her like versions of her song coming around again, I think that's a title, like pop up throughout the movie in different um like little different like compositions the uh uh iterations um like in altman's uh the long goodbye there's like 20 different versions of that song the long goodbye and that's the soundtrack it's kind of like that but one carly simon song i loved it i don't know i had that's a great time all that. You
1: need.
0: yeah i mean that's enough of a movie actually
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is a movie soundtrack one yeah. carly simon song
0: yeah um so yeah, uh as I said, uh this was my first rewatch of tiny furniture since uh, 2010. And I know that just from talking in the office that um with you that girls was a big was like an event for you. Um so what did you see which did you see first, I guess? Um, girls or tiny mm-hmm. furniture.
1: That's a good question. I think I saw girls first. Um because I know for a while that, like, Tiny Furniture was at South by Southwest, right? And that's where it premiered. And then I think Girls um, started. And then very quickly and very unusually, Criterion Collection picked up Tiny Furniture, um, which does, doesn't does happen in that, like, span. And then I think is kind of when I saw it. It might have been on cable before I got the Criterion DVD. Um, but Lena Dunham's work in particular was like, Very foundational to my work as, like, a scholar. Um, Like, I began my dissertation, which ended up being a kind of completely different thing. Um, But thinking about Girls in Tiny Furniture and the way people talk about Lena Dunham. Like, how much people hate or love Lena Dunham. She's a very polarizing figure. Um, And I'm not really invested in swaying people one way or another. (laughs) But I think her work as work, I think, is coming from a very particular point of view um, that I think is like really valid. Like people have these privileged lives. Like the, they live in these little bubbles. Like she, her mother is basically playing a version of herself in this movie. Lena Dunham's playing a version of herself. Her sister's playing a version of herself <laughs> in this film. Um, and it's, I don't know, like it's such an interesting critique of like becoming an artist in a family of artists um, that I that I really enjoyed and so yeah I don't care if you love or hate Lena Dunham I just think this (laughs) this film was just so important to me and like what I chose to do because I again like the discourse around Lena Dunham and her work I think is um, really reveals a lot about who we are as people more than it does about Mm -hmm. the work itself
0: (laughs) What well, it also launched so many like think pieces or hot takes or whatever. I think, I think they were called think pieces back then, but it was almost like a training ground for writing your own because there were so like, it was like a way to learn how to write that kind of critical, um, m- like more in depth than a review, but also still for us, like, you know, you know, at the day in the time, like slate or salon or something like that uh, everybody had, Yeah, a slew of these of these articles. And it was like, yeah, it was a way to like sort of learn how to write that kind of thing.
3: Mm -hmm. I think it's super interesting, though, too, when you think about girls and again, same how polarizing that show is for some people, Um, but how everyone in that series, it just launched their careers. I mean, everyone just got real famous really quick from like playing such controversial in a way, you know, people assholes,
0: really. Kenneth, what did you watch?
2: I watched um, I watched two very different films from Diana's list. I watched um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I had never seen, somehow. Um, and I also watched Enter the Dragon, like, just before uh, this call. So, again, very different. Um, but, yeah, I-, I was kind of surprised at how uh, dark <laughs> Hunchback of Notre Dame got. Um, but also just kind of surprised how like fun Enter the Dragon. I wasn't surprised at how fun Enter the Dragon was, but just like how, like, oh, this is a time, like, just watching Bruce Lee beat up people. Very fun.
1: I mean, Enter the Dragon doesn't fuck around. Like, you begin the movie and it's immediately like, fight. Why are they fighting? You don't need to know. They're just fighting. I love it. Like, I love a movie like that. Ah, Hunchback of Notre Dame. I could talk about this movie for a whole podcast episode i love this film so much i think the music the music to me is like really amazing it has this weird fusion of like the pop ballad like disney renaissance s- style with like church hymns <laughs> and like like weird gothic um like a weird gothic soundscape there is a really great um video essay by the YouTuber Lindsay Ellis on The Hunchback of Notre Dame, this 1996 version. Um, And one of the things that always comes up is, A, how did this movie ever get made? Because if you've seen it, one of the major like climactic moments of this film is Frollo, who's like a priest um, singing about how he's in love with um, Esmeralda, who's like a they call her a gypsy in the movie. I don't think we're allowed to say that anymore. She's a Romani woman. Um, and he's talking about how he lusts after her. And she's in the flames. And he's dancing about like his lust for this woman. And you're like, how did this get made? How did this film ever become a thing that Disney made? And Lindsay Ellis goes into exactly how this film got made. Um, and all the different versions that Disney's version is adapting. Um, none of which is actually... The Victor Hugo novel because it's really working within a tradition of theater and film as opposed to like the tradition of the novel um so in her view like the film is actually a really good adaptation of all these other versions that have left out like really important critiques like of the church and what the church is supposed to do and that's a Disney film in 1996 that was made and I love it
0: anything else what else do we want to say about Enter the Dragon
1: um, so this movie is really interesting. It's a, it's a Bruce Lee film. Why this is on my list. Um, my mom, like a lot of women in the world, had a crush on Bruce Lee. We used to bug her about it all the time. Um, But my parents were big like martial arts film watchers. A lot of action films were part of my life. But the director Robert Klaus is actually deaf. Um, So he did a lot of the choreography for like the visuals but had like assistant directors who would be there making sure that like the the actors said their lines right because he couldn't hear them when he was on set. Um, And so one of the things that I think is really cool about this film is like how incredibly visual it is. And that's why I really love like action films and martial arts films. Um, I also like for most like Bruce Lee films or films of this genre, like I was really glad that I was introduced to them when I was young and really early on because I think, especially like in the film world, like it's a very like male dominated space of like criticism and scholarship of these kinds of films. Um, it becomes it, it's exclusive, but then it becomes really like weirdly gatekeepery. Um, and I think I never felt that way or felt like these films were inaccessible because I grew up with them. Um, so for me, that was just something that I was always really, like, happy about. And and also, like, my parents stumbled into, like, a lot of gems just kind of playing, like, letting the TV play. Um, like, a lot of these films would be dubbed and show on, like, Spanish-language television channels. Um, also, growing up in, like, Southern California, we had a lot of public access, um, like, Asian language channels, um, which is where I saw a lot of this stuff, too, just, like, subtitled or even just would just watch it because so much of it is just fights that you don't even really need the dialogue to know who's the bad guy, <laughs> who's the good guy. So, so yeah, this is, this is an interesting film in terms of, like, I love it. I love the genre, but it also, I think, really... Um, helped cement the kind of mainstream entertainment that I'd be interested in as a
3: film scholar.
0: Dana, what? tell us what you watched.
3: My turn. So i would seen all these movies on your list, but I rewatched Stand and Deliver and Spring Breakers. So which one do you want to talk about? (laughs) Which
1: one do you want to talk about?
3: I always want to talk about (laughs) it. (laughs) <laughs> okay, I was going to start with Brain And this is why I think that I watched it. I mean, I don't remember seeing it. I know that I had seen it because I remember thinking Selena Gomez. Um, it was really shocking because I knew her from some, you know, little kid shows from Carter watching them. Um, but I don't think I really watched it until this time, like watched it, watched it. And I guess my question is, is why? I mean, I just want to know right off the bat, why is this one of your foundational films because it's so disturbing because to me. It's, it's like one of the most amazing. It's amazing, oh, it's amazing but what? I love like it. I, can't like, look at his I mouth. think
1: this movie is genius. <laughs> like and and I think it's per- precisely because like the whole marketing around this film was like here are these like Disney like stars. Yeah. Right. Vanessa Hutchins, Selena Gomez, the blonde girl, Um, it just doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, The Pretty Little Liars girl. girl. (laughs) Um, You know, in these roles that are very different from what you've seen them, you know, James Franco in this like very problematic role, but is also, you know, like modeled on like a rapper. I just think that the the fusion between the celebrity and the role has never been more perfect than in this film, like I am just like in awe that this is something that even happened. Um, Yeah, it for me, it's just like the entire text about it, because the first thing you saw when this film was coming out were I think they were like Instagram posts of the girls getting arrested, but they didn't say that it was like them filming or what it was for. It was just these like Disney stars in pink bikinis, like getting arrested and like, you know, lying on top of this cop car. And so there was this whole kerfuffle (laughs) around like, what is this film? What are they doing? I think it's the resurgence of like James Franco and these like weird character actor roles when he had been doing the teen heartthrob route for a long time. Um, yeah, I just don't think there's ever a more perfect film than this. I also just think it's really beautiful. Like the shots and the color. The it's like beautifully composed um in like a really like painterly way and it's about this like gross st- stuff and gross people. I love it.
3: Yeah, never Florida never looked worse <laughs> in a weird strange way. Yeah. Um, the other part that I couldn't get over, I mean, this is just me, but can you imagine just being in the situations that they're in, just in bathing suits, the entire, (laughs) like they're in court, just in a bathing in (laughs) bikinis, like give them a jumpsuit for God's sake. (laughs) Just like, and then they're like, you're going to spend the rest of the time in county jail in your bikinis (laughs) and just your jail cell. They'll give you a tiny little blanket. Um, Yeah, that movie is, I mean, it's so problematic though for me when I watch it. Just James Franco just put me in this whole, um, just a wormhole on the internet. Just reading about what a disgusting person he is in real life. And like, oh, and you're in this movie. It just seemed like, here you are. It's your prime role. I'm with you. Um,
1: But this is the kind of movie that I love. Like, I love over-the-top films. I love i love it when actors you can just tell that they like are giving their all to this thing and i think james franco is doing the mo like you can tell he's enjoying this role which like i really appreciate um and i i enjoy a film and i enjoy a director that like knows very clearly what it is and what it's supposed to be and like that's what it does there's no flip-flopping here you love this movie or you hate it but it like has a very clear vision I appreciate that.
0: Well, let's then, um, let's go ahead and then and hand it off to Dana. You are next on my list for, uh, yeah, letting us know what your list is. Give us a brief explanation. If there's any through line, um, tell us what you need to tell us about your list.
3: I like all of us. I had a very hard time narrowing it down. And of course, after I pressed send, I'd like, you know, regretted so many things that I didn't include, got mad at myself. Uh La Bamba should have been on there. I've decided after I watched that movie, like, Oh, I watched that movie religiously when I was a kid, but anyway, it's not on my list. Here we go. I'm just going to read them out. I didn't put dates. We can all just use our Google machines. ET, Poltergeist, Dirty Dancing, Adventures in Babysitting, Ghostbusters, Seven, Pan's Labyrinth, Dancer in the Dark, My Life Without Me, A Very Long Engagement, Garden State, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Those are my, that's my four lists. Um, you can see that there is a mighty large break in between the years. So you can basically break it up into the 80s. There's one film in there in the 90s or two, maybe. And then the rest are like early 2000s, either late 90s or early 2000s up to like 2004 or five.
0: Well, I wanted to get started. I watched two movies uh, on, and it's just kind of luck of what I had available, but I ended up watching two movies that I had not seen before that are from the 80s portion of the list. And I think like, I'm happy that I got to see them because I'm such a 80s baby, of course, as we talk talked about all the time. I watched Poltergeist and Dirty Dancing, neither of which I had watched before, uh, to my great shame. Um,
1: you had never seen those before.
0: No, never seen them. Now I have. So thank I you, can't believe thank it. you so much, to- <laughs> Kenneth. Has seen them both, of course. Yeah. Oh no, Kenneth is saying he hasn't either.
1: Kenneth has age on his side. Okay. He hasn't had a chance to watch a lot of things, Patrick.
0: <laughs> He's so new. Yeah, no, and I had nothing but time. Um, so yeah, now I've seen Poltergeist. I Well, of course, I loved both of these movies, obviously. I knew that I was going to, and they were both kind of like ones that for a long time I could just kind of like get away with saying that I had seen because I knew so much about them, and I had seen bits of them, but now I've actually seen them. Poltergeist, I don't know. what. It, Seeing this with fresh eyes, I wonder if you feel the same way, Dana. It's kind of a shaggy movie. Like, there's a lot of, it's a lot of fat.
3: The the thing that always surprised. So I watched it recently, um, maybe about you know within the last year, and I'm always surprised at how much swearing and smoking and drinking, and it's a PG movie. <laughs> yeah. Like how how do you get away with that? But yeah, I agree. There's just so much random stuff. There's so many. Pictures of I mean the when they're the, the filmers are in the move in the house, you know, they're trying to record things. Like what are they doing? There's is it a boom mic. There's
0: two sets
3: of ghost hunters.
0: Come on. It's Sp- so weird. Spielberg is a producer on this. Step in and say we need just we just need the one team of ghost hunters.
1: That's the big controversy about this film though. Oh,
0: what is oh it's is
1: yeah, so um, let me remind myself who the director. Toby Hooper, the director. director Toby Hooper,
0: of yeah. Um, but
1: supposedly Toby Hooper was doing a terrible job, so there is discrepancy uh, over whether Steven Spielberg actually stepped in to basically direct the latter half of this film, or if this is actually the film that Toby Hooper wanted, and then it was wow. like recut or like remade afterwards. It's unclear whether you should call Toby Hooper the director or Steven Spielberg the director. There was creative conflict between those two people.
0: I think that answers actually. I think that could explain why it feels so wobbly um, if there was struggle over integral stuff. And I'm sorry, but do you think Craig T. Nelson made up the name Tangina Barres right on the spot? Because he <laughs> even seems he even stumbles over. It. He's like, you said that this this ghost hunter this. <laughs> Tina Barres was the best. Like, <laughs> um, it seems like he's ad-libbing it. If that, and I think I don't even know if that's the name. I might be getting it wrong, but I think he made it up. And they I had hope to be that's like a
1: name you just made up. It
0: It's even my
3: screenplay.
0: <laughs> I have suspicions.
3: I like. The, I'm so proud that you picked that one because I mean it's technically a scary movie. I saw obviously too yeah. young again, yeah, and it yeah, ter- good job. It okay. terrified me as a um, child. I mean, forever terrified of trees, <laughs> cemeteries under, underneath my house, uh, pools with things in the pools, uh, and clowns. That stupid clown. Oh, that clown. clown. Really ruined that things. clown's
0: the worst part. It
3: ruins things for everyone. The clown's the worst. Yeah.
0: Um, I do think-
3: Yeah, that and It.
0: Oh, you know? yeah. I'm not ready for It. I think, well, I was prepared. <laughs> I knew that Poltergeist wasn't gonna be much worse than a movie that I love called The Burbs. So I, I I was kind of prepared for the level it was going to be at. Um, what? How did this? In what way did this movie? Do you think like can, does it continue to shape your taste in the movies that you look for?
3: I mean, I love so I I definitely went through a phase where I I mean I was obsessed with hauntings mm. of some sort, and I still do. I mean, out of I don't know about you, Kenneth, but out of every, I know out of Diana and Patrick, I. I love a horror movie, like a ghost or a like the movie, as seen as my and my a couple other things on my list. But um, I'm trying to think if it like shapes the way. Really, what I remember is we it would it came on TV. It was you know so I'm guessing it was probably around you know let's say 85 then when I saw it, still young. I was probably or maybe 84 somewhere around there. Only five or six years old when I saw it. Um, And just like the whole, you know, the fuzzy screen thing happened at our house all the time that, you know, it was time for the TV or the, all of the broadcast system signals went away. And so just that in and of itself is just terrifying. Just thinking about like, what if I put my hands on this TV screen and all of a sudden I was in the TV, what would happen to me? You know, just that kind of stuff really, um, I think about those things that I, I mean, I just love a suspense. I love a, like, oh, if I did it, you know, what's going to happen? Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's where it came from, but plus it was just all like you were saying, it's all over the place. Like just ev- there, everything was made scary. Like yeah. anything in your house came alive without to get you. You could be trapped in a closet tornado with all your crap. Watch out. Yeah. I love it.
0: I loved the my favorite shot was this swirl like the slowly swirling room part before oh, yeah. like things get real crazy when they're like something weird's happening it's definitely happening oh oh and I in the two movies that I watched I loved this this might be a good segue um, there are moments where like something that a male character is reading signifies a personality defect and in Poltergeist. It's Craig T. Nelson reading uh, a biography of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> and in uh, Dirty Dancing, it's the scoundrel, the, like, really piece of shit yeah. dude. is He, like, yeah. recommends a dog-eared, beat-up, careworn copy of The Fountainhead. He, like, tries to hand it to, to, like, Jennifer Grey's character, I think, and be like, but be careful with it. You have to give it back. So anyway, <laughs> I love, but I mean, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess you'd go through with this speaking of dirty dancing.
3: <laughs> yeah, dirty dancing. I mean, there's so many, oh, this movie was so great. I, my best friend and I like many best friends did practice that lift a thousand times so that we could do it. We had it on v- VHS and we would stop that part and rewind it and really of course I was the bottom so I'm trying to hold my friend Susan up I think I got her up a few times I mean it's just it's just it's such a good movie and to on a serious note um it was one of the first movies that um portrayed a botched abortion as a young kid um you know at first just not really understanding what was happening uh I that was like a really, you know, as an adult, then going back and rewatching it, or you know, I watched it so many times over the years. So rewatching it and then starting to understand like what this is about, it's really important, actually, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, lesson.
0: And it's not. Um, uh, I think I knew that there was an abortion in the film, but I kind of thought that it was like sort of a side plot. It's like a very pivotal pivot. Excuse me, pivotal mm-hmm. point in the story, and kind of like the it's why. Jennifer Gray and Patrick Swayze start practicing, is to fill in for this Mm -hmm. this, uh, young woman who needs to procure an abortion. Um, And yeah, it's, uh, I think, yeah, it's still, I mean, now we have things, um, recently there's been things like uh, Obvious Child that also deal with abortion in such a frank way, but I don't know of anything much earlier than than Dirty Dancing.
3: And the fact that it's in a movie that we, like so many kids and so many women who are now women, but girls my age, you know, watched and just idealized all of the people in the movie so much, just like I wanted to be able to do that dance no matter who I was. Either or Patrick Swayze, Jennifer Grey, Penny, I don't care, I wanted to be any of those dancers. The soundtrack to that movie, I will say that soundtrack also is really important in almost all of my movies that i pick um but there's one in movie in particular uh later in life that i realized like wow soundtrack is is one of the most important things to me in a film music like with lyrics or or not just in general anyway
1: you need those so soundtrack though hungry eyes yeah.
3: I
0: think it's yeah. I, oh, I think it's notable for the mixture of so the movie is set in the sixties and it's a mixture of period songs and songs that became solid gold contemporary hits of the eighties. Like so oh, yeah. many time, I had we I had I the, the time the of my life. Uh, oh,
3: there's yeah. like Patrick Swayze just pulled us in. Yep. Truly. I love that you watched that movie. I love that you watched both those
0: movies. Me too. Thank you very much for this wonderful list. Feels important. Yeah. Um, okay, then I think it's my turn to hand this off to, well, let's keep it. We'll do Kenneth and then we'll do Diana. Kenneth, go ahead. What'd you watch?
2: Okay. Um, I only got to watch E.T. on the list, which I have never seen before. Uh, again, there's a uh, there's a good chunk I haven't seen before, but Boy oh boy, was it fun to watch ET? I got so many references uh, retroactive. This is something we also talked about when I saw you in the office of just like getting references way after the fact, which is those are very fun.
1: Now, anytime anyone bikes in front of a moon, you're like, oh, I get it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I, as soon as they did that, I was like, from everything, <laughs> I point It was the Leonardo DiCaprio meme of like the thing. <laughs> Yeah, it was a a treat to sort of see just sort of, like, that Spielbergian, uh, like, nostalgia, earnestness that, like, inspired, like, just so much uh, other, like, not imitators, but just sort of, like, that whole, I guess, subgenre of, like, film of, like, supernatural coming of age sort of type deal, which is really exciting to see so many roots of that there.
0: Yeah, you couldn't call supernatural coming of age a subgenre until <laughs> Spielberg came along with that uh, innovation.
1: Yeah. I do think it is one of those films that like you say Steven Spielberg and you think Steven Spielberg so much that like when you actually go back and watch a film, I feel like this is one of the movies that's like yeah, he's really good at what he does. You know, like he deserves to be Steven Spielberg. It's just such a beautiful film. It's it's so for me like heartbreaking like when they're taking like it's just so sad and I honestly don't watch the movie because of that scene because I just remember having a really visceral reaction to like him being taken and being in that tent with all the guys and the white. It's just like so scary. Um, but yeah, it's, you're just like, yeah, Steven Spielberg deserves to be who he is because this movie is just wonderful.
3: I, so like I said, I saw that at the Dundee. My mom always tells the story about how there were two movies we saw at the Dundee that she, I remember her telling stories about my older brother and I, so my older brother's five years older than me. So anyway, we, we watched Muppets or something there. And she said it was me and my mom trying to find my brother in this black theater. And my older brother was laughing so hard as the only reason why we could find where he was sitting. And then, but E.T., she had to take Adam to the restroom and came back and was again, couldn't find where, where I was. <laughs> it was like Probably three or four, you know, just chilling in the theater. But I was laying on the floor bawling. And it was at this, it was the tent scene. My mom had to like pick me up off the floor and was just like, you know, I was inconsolable for the rest of the movie. I mean, and even still, when I watch it, I get so, like you said, so choked up. Ugh, it's terrible because you think he's dead and he's not, but you know, you don't know. And as a kid, it's like, it was Elliot's best friend. And yeah, I do love a heartbreaking movie. You do. Mm -hmm. I like to be wrecked. Mm
2: -hmm. I think one thing- I
3: was- I
2: I think one thing that surprised me was sort of like the weird telepathic connection between E.T. and um, Ellie. I can't remember names very well but yeah Yeah. I think like as a a sci-fi nerd I thought that was like a really again I love a little supernatural bit um, and I thought that was like such a great way of like really selling that emotional connection like of course like every child wants to have a, a alien best friend but like to have like that like it's here's like the this is the way this species communicates and like sort of tying that emotion like directly like when et is dying like he feels it it's just like the emotion just like hits all the more like oh, that was such a weird but cool um way to tell that story element diana
3: what did you watch yeah let's
0: kick it on over to, to diana
1: i watched seven I realized I had never seen this film before. I thought I had seen this film. I'd seen a lot of the pivotal scenes and obviously the ending, um, but then I realized, oh, I never watched it because the credits are scary. <laughs> it's these prestige prestige drama credits, which we would now recognize, just like you know, things on top of one another, writing, dirty fingernails, and like scary stuff. Um, and with like this and Trent, failed. yeah, with this Trent Reznor soundtrack, um, and I remember being like, mm, "This seems like grimy and scary, and I don't want to watch it." So I finally watched Seven. This is a great film. I mean, I knew it was going to be good, but it was actually like really good. And looking at this list, it is not the films that I that I would describe Dana with. But seeing the list, I'm like, oh, this is why she's the way that she is. <laughs> I don't know, because Dana's just like a really like funny, like I wouldn't say upbeat, but you're high energy. But the films on your list are so dark and some of them are so incredibly sad. that oh, yeah. I'm just like this. This is a like a really resilient person who watches things like Garden State and freaking Dancer in the Dark for fun. And like seven, like this is a person who can withstand grizzly things. So I think this this is a good encapsulation of like Dana's true being Ooh, that like that that. that, I don't know, I'm too weak for this list. Like, I can't do this list. This is not my formative list. My list is like, I don't know, shallow and pretty and like very like narcissistic and self-centered. But Dana's is very like deep problems, depression, murder. Dancing that's too risque. That's you, my friend. Living on the edge, Dana. Me, it's
3: me. (laughs) Welcome (laughs) to my soul.
1: It's just fascinating looking at this list and thinking of Dana.
3: Seven is when I fell in love with Brad Pitt. I mean I mean, come on.
1: Was he dating just,
3: Gwyneth at this time? Do you know? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Brad Pitt though really won me over in this movie. And you know, that twist ending, no one saw that ending coming when we went to that movie. You were not mm-hmm. you were not expecting that. That was a real punch in the face. Mm-hmm. And um I think I think you know I like movies like that and Dancer in the dark because, like, you're right, in a way, I like to see, I don't necessarily like a happy ending because it will piss me off because I will think, that does not happen. Somebody's head needs to end up in a box. That makes it real. That happens in real life.
1: There's a lot of boxes and a lot of them my head's in them.
0: All right. I think uh, it's time to turn to Kenneth's list. So, Kenneth, if you wouldn't mind uh, telling us a bit about your formative film. Yeah, this
2: this is what the kids are watching these days. Um, uh, so I'll yeah I'll just start. Um, first off, oh I also have to preface that I have two of these films on VHS off screen uh, that I just bought for a dollar at a local CD shop. Um, but yeah, okay. First things first, Batman Forever, starring Val Kilmer. Next, Adam's Family Values. Next, Scooby Doo. Uh, Shrek Two. Uh, Rush Hour Two, Spider or yeah, Rush Hour Two, Spider Man Two, Men in Black, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, The One I Love, Sorry to Bother You, The Farewell, The Last Jedi, very chaotic
1: list.
0: <laughs> I, mean, I love it. Yeah, it's uh, it's probably not as all over the place as some of the other lists, though. I mean,
1: it make it's cohesive as yeah. an aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It's hey.
0: candy.
2: It's all
1: candy. <laughs>
0: It's all candy, yeah, yeah. I suppose big, broad films for the most part.
1: <laughs> A lot of sequels, kind yeah. of. Yeah, I
2: didn't know. I how see to you do
1: them. not believe that the sequels are uh, better than the <laughs> 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 originals. Usually, according to Kenneth. Sometimes they
2: are. It's weird, you know.
1: They- I'm excited to talk about the one I watched. Oh, yeah, I, I'm
2: excited.
0: Me too. Yeah, okay. I'm
2: very curious how you chose which one yeah.
0: to watch. Yeah. All right, then I'll kick it off. Um I rewatched one and watched one anew uh, uh or for the first time. There were a lot of movies on this list that I was so excited because I want to rewatch them. Um and they were movies that I would have that I loved at some point uh when I was uh like 9 to 12ish range which I th- I don't know what that's about but uh like movies that came out when I was 9 to 12 and loved them contemporaneously when they were first out so then the one that I'd never seen and uh this was just because I had a hard time finding these on my uh available streaming sources so
1: I watched
0: Scooby-Doo yeah
3: <laughs> oh the Sir Boy. Michelle Geller one right yeah. Okay. Well, here's Jr. You get to see their love and action. Here's the
0: thing: for the last episode, I watched. She's all that. In 100, like something like 75% of the cast of She's All That is the main cast of this Scooby Doo. Let's do Matthew Lillard. 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 True. True. And yeah. Sir
1: Michelle Gellar in her cameo.
0: I'll need several minutes to talk about Matthew Lillard, but uh, awesome. first, <laughs> first, King. Kenneth, tell me. Did you say?
1: King, yeah, Matthew I mean, Lillard King. Earnestly.
0: No, oh, then wrong. We, then <laughs> I am just restraining. We'll have. We're gonna get into Matthew Lillard here in a second, especially in this movie. But first, Kenneth, tell me about your relationship with Scooby Doo and how oh. it has changed. How it changed your life.
2: Oh boy, Scooby Doo! What a franchise! What a film! Uh, yeah, uh, th- this is a movie that I think, if put to the test, I could speak. I could verbally speak it all the way through like wow. when I rewatch it in recent years there are just lines that like I hear and then I just feel it. it's not like oh I remember it in my head I remember it in like the pit of my stomach <laughs> um and like it's very much I think another common theme without throughout these movies is just like I'm a I have this weird I think it's because I'm an only child and did not have a lot of uh, friends growing up. So like, I would (laughs) really get into franchises, like Scooby-Doo, I would watch the movies and then I would like, what's new Scooby-Doo was on. Uh, I'd buy the toys, like I would buy the Scooby-Doo Barbies. Like I would just, and I did this repetitively, like other, like, again, there are other things on this list that I have had the same reaction with. Um, And that was very much the case with Scooby-Doo. And I don't know, just this movie and also i think even before like there was like the shaggy meme like a couple years ago with just uh like like with matthew loader <laughs> was like oh yeah i blacked out in the pure soul of shaggy <laughs> my body yeah just before all that like I don't know, it's just one of those movies where it's also very it's pretty funny and just like just also the cast of it is very iconic just like again sarah michelle keller freddie prince jr uh linda Cardellini, who is i mean we are we're it's her world we're just living in it it's true um yeah yeah I don't know I can't there's too much to say about this film for me (laughs) um yeah just an entrance into the world of Scooby-Doo and (laughs) I have been a fan ever since
0: had you watched the cartoon before this was the cartoon like a presence in your life
2: I don't know I think I I think one thing about this movie is that it was a part of like the Scooby-Doo resurgence where I think Mm. it preempted because I, I had Boomerang at some point like the little old cartoon like Cartoon Network but for the older stuff um and I don't remember if it was before or after but I know What's New Scooby-Doo was starting around that so it was basically just the old show but just Fred's got a stripe on his shirt now um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. so yeah it was a lot of that it was the mo- the live action movie What's New Scooby-Doo and like also like the direct-to-DVD movies that had come out too So there was a plethora of other content to fill the void of that live action film as well.
0: Okay, so there was plenty to watch while you were waiting for the sequels.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Which I remember being conscious for. Sure. My childhood (laughs) of just the hype around Monsters Unleashed.
0: Yeah.
1: That makes people ugly. (laughs) And I gotta say-
0: (laughs) <laughs> again toward the freaky friday between this movie and she's all that i mean you've got Freddie prince yeah. sarah michelle Geller, who wasn't Gold huge and she's all that but she was there uh lillard was there um who i think that i feel like there's one more shared cast member but they she's all thated reverse she's all thated linda cardellini in which she was a beautiful woman is a beautiful woman that they just put glasses on <laughs>
1: And now look at you, Miss Linda Cardellini.
0: Exactly, yeah. So yeah. that then she's Velma.
3: Hey, what I is- just put that weird bob haircut, the mushroom yep. cut, and then the glasses. Basically, what I look like as a child
0: <laughs> is that
3: haircut <laughs> and those glasses.
0: <laughs> so let's. Um, I guess this is the moment we're all waiting to. That you know, I'm waiting to leap into, which is uh, your king, Matthew Lillard. Yeah, he is giving everything in this movie.
2: <laughs> I want a refund, and There's I want reason.
0: to yes. send it all right back.
2: <laughs> no, there is a reason why he is the current animated voice of Shaggy in the current Scooby Doo cartoons. This is they exactly gave him right. the job.
0: This is exactly they... right
3: because yeah. he earned he earned that job. But I did. don't need to see him. You're right. Patrick. Well,
0: here's the thing. So I feel like everybody else in this movie is fairly restrained. Every other human in this movie is fairly restrained because they knew that one of their co-stars was going to be a cartoon dog that could be more emotive, expressive, grosser, uh, do crazier stunts, be more physical than they could ever be. And then Matthew Lillard completely outdoes anything that cartoon dog does. It's an all-in performance. Like, I maybe have never seen before. I, I
2: have
1: a but don't you don't you admire that commitment exactly.
2: Okay, <laughs> um, producer Josh here. Um, I I sent everybody a list of my formative films, and there's two Matthew Lillard films in it. So I just have to say that.
1: I mean, he was huge. King. <laughs>
2: I that's all I can say.
0: Scream is
2: in my list. Yeah, King of acting. and I
0: put SLC Punk
2: and and Matthew Lillard Mm -hmm. at the end of SLC Punk he is incredible
1: get out Anthony Hopkins and make room for Matthew Lillard. I
2: I will defend uh, Matthew Lillard's performance because in the (laughs) Scooby-Doo franchise they're all uh, the you say Scooby-Doo is the cartoon dog but arguably Shaggy's the other cartoon like I feel like if when you look at the cartoon it's like I'm Fred, I'm the guy, I'm Daphne, I'm the girl. They're all boring. boring. Belma is the bridge between the cartoon world and the boring people. And Shaggy's the other cartoon (laughs) with Scooby. Sure. (laughs) Like um, he's the one who gets to have the spiky hair and the scream and run in midair (laughs) and off the camera. So I think Matthew Lillard just met the source material.
0: Well, Kenneth, thank you so much for the experience of seeing Scooby-Doo.
2: You're welcome. That's all I want to put in the world. Okay, <laughs> success. Preach the gospel of Scooby Doo.
0: <laughs> okay, and then um, let's hand it over to let's hand it over to Dana. Why don't we? If you're ready to go,
3: I love this list because it's um probably. I mean, it's a list that was formative with me and Carter, my son, who was born in 2002. So I, out of all of the three lists from um all from you guys, I um, this is the one that I've seen. And am most like confident to talk about any of them with because I'd seen them 150 times as my five-year-old kid wanted to rewatch them a zillion times. So Scooby-Doo, we talked about this too at the office. Carter was in love with Scooby-Doo. Um, this movie was in 2002 when he was born. So like a couple years later when we can get them all on on VHS or DVD, we watched the crap out of Scooby-Doo, um, the reboot for sure. All of those straight to DVD, anyway. I wanted to rewatch m- one of my faves that was Shrek 2. Had to watch it, rewatch it. Since I've seen all these, that was the one that I hadn't seen in the longest art or one of the few. And I, I'm gonna just say, I can't wait to hear Diana talk about Batman forever because out of this list is my least favorite movie. <laughs> I started trying to watch that movie with me and I was like, absolutely not. I will not watch Val Kilner as Batman. But um, yeah, so Shrek 2, again, I think the soundtrack for Shrek 2 is super iconic. It um, like makes that movie. I love, and I do love a, like an animated film that has, um, you know, lyrics or real real world, real world music. What am I trying to say? People music instead of just music for the film. So um, yeah, I mean, I don't really know what to, I don't, what do you want to talk about Shrek 2? And what parts about Shrek 2 do you want to talk about? And then let's just do yeah. it um I don't know why was it so important to you
2: yeah um I think it's I I feel like also there's like the general re-shreckening of just like Shrek being a meme now but I I think out of the those I think I stopped after three but like the second Shrek was just again it was very iconic like the uh holding out for a hero scene is just that cinema right there um and yeah I think there's a lot of similar to Scooby-Doo, there's just a lot of scenes and moments that just sort of stick in like the the inner child of my soul where I'm just like, oh yeah, I remember that like, in the brain, in the heart, everything. Um, human Shrek sticks out um, as something that fascinated me to a, a, a scientific extent um, where I just was obsessed with just like Shrek but human. <laughs> um, just made me think <laughs> a lot.
0: The theoretical limits of Shrekness and humanity. And...
2: Yeah. Like, I just wanted to know, what is everyone but human? Oh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Just wanted, to, yeah, that was a big uh, moment in my child brain. Um, but yeah, I think it, it was just definitely one of those movies that just sort of, I don't know if I would say it's better than the first one, but it's the one that I definitely remember better than the first one, or more than the first one. Also, the title screen is wild of just like, the DVD menu of them in the Brady Bunch formation, and then the extras where they just do American Idol and Simon Cowell's there. That, I can't... I will never be able to erase from my memory.
3: I will say that this one, I mean, when I was watching it, I didn't even know that I had most of it memorized. I mean, I knew all of the lines and it's, you know, all of Carter, but he rewatched Trek Two definitely more than he watched the first one.
1: I watched Batman Forever. So, this was... on purpose (laughs) so uh Parker and I actually watched um the Michael Keaton Batmans so it was kind of like okay like we'll move on to the Val Kilmer Batmans Val Kilmer is not my Batman Michael Keaton is my Batman George Clooney is no one's Batman Christian Bale doesn't count because it's a whole it's a whole separate vibe it's a whole separate thing and then, like, Ben Affleck is no one's Batman as well. Like, he's not even his own Batman. I was surprised that this film was chosen. Because not only is Val Kilmer not my Batman, none of these people should have been in this film. <laughs> <laughs> they should not have been, Everybody
0: was miscast. <laughs>
1: so Everybody terrible. was so miscast. I mean, the only thing, like, Val Kilmer is so handsome with the hair and he's just like the chiseled face and the voice like i get it like i get why he was batman the only thing i appreciated was jim carrey and i will say i'm not a jim carrey fan i never even when i was younger did i like care for the mask or care for his kind of humor like i just thought it was too over the top like it wasn't very funny for me it was like a boy humor to me but like lowbrow boy humor but I appreciated how much he was mm. giving to this role, which is why I'm like kind of defending Matthew Lillard a little bit, because I feel like you're in this film that at some point you're on set and you have to be like, this isn't going well. So I got to fix it. I got to do all yeah, I at can least they won't
0: At least they won't say th- that I didn't do everything I can.
1: One other thing about th- these films, especially as I've been like watching them as part of like revisiting old Batman's is like this thing that people have been saying about like Marvel and DC films, like contemporary Marvel DC films, is that like those just aren't as fun. Mm. You know, like I do like the leaning into the camp here. And I think that's why I really loved Jim Carrey, because I feel like he's, play- he's playing the campiness in the way that the film is envisioned, that fits with, you know, the Tim Burton influence, cinematography and like camera style. Like it all coheres as an aesthetic, and it is, in theory, fun. <laughs> this movie was not the most notionally fun, fun. but there are yeah. other films that I think are fun. I get it. I think as a whole, I get this list aesthetic. And do
0: you think like is Batman Forever one of the first superhero movies on this list? Was it formative in that way? I mean, I think comic, uh, comic book superheroes—that's big for you, right?
2: Yeah, I think so. Uh, um, yeah, I think I don't know what order I watched those '90s Batmans. Manses, but they were definitely I think some of the first ones uh, but no, bat, bat, man, Batman, man. Batman, Um But yeah, I think there's a reason why I it's, put
0: It's Batsman
2: Batsmans, yes <laughs> um, But yeah, I think there's a reason why I put this and Spider-Man 2 on the list because those were like, being a child of the late 90s, those were the like, the superheroes I was allowed to see because Blade was around but he was rated R so I couldn't see him But uh, But, um, yeah, those, and I think, like, what Diana said, it really, like, now that we're so steeped in, like, superheroes are the biggest thing in the world, um, which is, you know, as tiny baby Kenneth would be, like, wow, this is great, but also it's, again, like, comparatively, like, if you look at, like, the trailers for Captain, or, like, Winter Soldier, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, like, they're just so dry and, like, concrete and dour, but, like, you look at, Batman Forever and it's like a neon candy, like like overwhelming, like, um, like again, overwhelming in a way. Um, and I think I like that more. And I think that's why I kind of like some of the DC movies, or I don't like a lot, a lot of the DC movies currently are not great, but I like that they sort of are having a lot of directors take swings in a way. Like uh, I won't get into the whole Snyder thing, but like Birds of Prey specifically, that was, that's why that was maybe one of my favorite DC films since they like started making collective is because yeah. it like had that visual, like, like we're going to do our own thing. We're not going to like subscribe to like check the boxes. Like, well, this isn't a gray warehouse here. And like, it was allowed to be so weird and also like a modern superhero movie. Um, and I think that really ties back to like, the reason I like that so much is the reason why I like Batman Forever as a child is because it just... Was so unapologetically
0: insane. <laughs> I think I think we should shout out. Uh, That's a great yeah, way to and I think it. we should probably shout out the director Joel Schumacher, mm-hmm. who um, had a very interesting career, um, mostly mostly as a producer though, right? Um, but uh, somebody who was not afraid to make distinctive movies, big swings, not all of them beloved. Um, yeah,
3: he made eight millimeter. Oh. Wow! I saw that movie in the theater, and I brought someone who was wholly unsatisfied. With that
0: movie. <laughs> Would like their money Enjoy back? Like the money back? i was the same writer as Seven. Wow! Ooh. Eight millimeter. Also, Joel Schumacher was started as a costume designer. So oh, that I makes total sense. Yeah.
2: I was going to just speak up, like the the legacy of the Joel Schumacher films, or just like, because like uh, up until like his passing away recently like it's just sort of interesting like when like the Christopher Nolan movies were coming out they were like because like it was essentially like Batman for Batman and Robin killed the franchise because they were just so big swings and like they were often considered like the quote-unquote gay uh Batman movies like from like the toxic fanboy culture and like just sort of like seeing the sort of slow like reclamation of them in a way of just like the way that like comics fandoms are becoming more like inclusive and less toxic, knock on wood, hopefully they are, I don't know, um, and just sort of seeing them come back in a way of just like, yeah, we have a lot of like gritty superheroes that give like the fanboys what they want, but like, let's make some space to just honor these uh, like weird films that like have a, just explicit homoerotic edge that like is something that like, it's, it's novel now, I think.
0: All right, so it's finally, uh, it's my turn now to talk about my list and hear what you guys, uh, I don't know, I'm scared. (laughs) All right, let's just jump, let's jump into it. My list is Jumpin' Jack Flash, Point Break, um, Oh Brother Art Thou, This Is Spinal Tap, The Royal Tenenbaums, The Delicious, which is a short film, Chunking Express, with Nolan and I in Moonlight, and those are in the order that I watched them, that I saw them first. So, um, I think we've been going, uh, I think in the order that we've been going, that means that Dana, you'd be first to tell me, let me hear it.
3: So I love, I, I think I already told you this, but O Brother Where Art Thou? and Royal Moms were on my list. Then I, I saw yours and I took them off. So love that, <laughs> love your list. I just saw Chunking Express just this last year during our our Arkham Y repertory series, Um, which, so I'm not gonna talk about that one either. I watched (laughs) The Delicious.
0: You did, I'm so glad. I did. I'm so glad. All right. You
3: did too? Okay, so I was, I mean, I was pleasantly surprised that it was only 15 minutes, like, yes. (laughs) Sign me up for many of these because then I could watch so many. Um, I, I'm so excited to hear why this is formative for you, but my, this is what I was just thinking about in my kitchen after I watched it. I was like, I will never not think of, t- of me- um, a man in a red suit, <laughs> a man in a yellow suit, doing some weird scissor dance.
0: With scissors, think, with scissors.
3: With scissors. Yes, yes, thank
0: you. When,
3: when I hear someone say the delicious or the word delicious, it's forever. Yeah, uh, it's like, I'll never it'll never be mine again. It'll always be a jumpsuit term.
0: So I picked it because of that because it it scarred me. I've actually I haven't rewatched it forever. I found it on YouTube for you guys and just put it in there because I've never forgotten watching it. Uh, I watched it probably I watched it and then I shared it with some friends. I was like I watched this real weird thing. It came in a DVD magazine called Wolfen that um, Nick Sweeney's put out for a little bit maybe they still, I don't know maybe it still exists but it was like a collection of short films uh, on a DVD one of them was "The d- delicious I showed it to some friends and they like responded it responded to it in the same way and we then watched it like five times or something and I haven't watched it since but it's yeah. it stands in though also for a whole lot of like indie, quirky stuff that was coming out around then that I was totally, you know, totally into. I want to say like Miranda July would fit into it, I think. Um, Yes. Stuff like that. It kind of just like is a placeholder and it's also short. So I figured like it'd be fun for you guys to watch it. And it's just like a succinct way of saying like, you know, when I was like 21 to 24, I was watching a bunch of like this DIY weird humor, like very funny. It's
3: so weird.
0: It's so bizarre. And it's so weird. The thing that I also remember that's seared in my mind is when his partner is, like, the... She's, like, they're having an argument, and she's, like, this thing, the bullicious. The bullicious. It's, like, it's not malicious. That's not anything. It's delicious.
2: I mean, yeah, it was as weird as we were all saying. Um, yeah, I don't know why, but it did feel on brand. Like, I was, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, this is, like, very quirky, like, um... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it just I was like, yeah, I can see a PK liking
0: this, mm-hmm. in a big way, in a real big way. <laughs> Did you watch anything else, or?
2: Oh yeah, I watched um, oh Royal Tenenbaum.
0: Yeah, I haven't. Seen oh, that. Yeah. you had not? No, no. <laughs> wow. Okay. Did like spill it?
2: I mean, I I feel like yeah. I mean, it's it is a Wes Anderson movie. I don't I don't like I don't know how to expand on it more than that i was like yeah
0: that's was
2: <laughs> anderson made this um i mean like for for, <laughs> for good and ill yeah he did make this movie yeah um but yeah i i enjoyed it um i a lot i did not know gene hackman and angelica who and i said her wrong name I'm so wrong angelica, houston houston angelica, yeah. angelica houston yeah i didn't know that they were angelica houston uh from adam's family values uh crossover oh, of
0: course yes
2: yeah yes. um but yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed seeing them in this. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like it was, uh, from an era of Wes Anderson that I hadn't really seen at all. Um, but yeah, it was really, really a fascinating watch. Um, I'm curious to hear you speak on it. Uh,
0: well, it's truly a document, uh, <laughs> of, of a time. So it came out when I was a senior in high school over Christmas break and, uh, the, his previous movie, Rushmore, had been showing on um, Comedy Central constantly for about a year before that, uh, and I uh, really got into Rushmore um, slowly over because uh, I just didn't stop watching Comedy Central, and eventually uh, I really liked this movie, Rushmore, um, and then I saw a preview for a movie called The Royal Tenenbaums, and I was like, that looks like it's by some guy did like, like ripping off the guy who did Rushmore or whatever, and then I used uh, America Online to find out yeah. that they were directed by the same person. So I got my friends together and I was like, "We got to be excited about this movie!" and went to see it like twice over Christmas break. Um, so it was a big movie for me. It was like kind of, I think it's important for me because of that. Like, it's one of the first movies that I went to go see because of the director. Specifically, not for any other reason, because I had learned and recognized a director's aesthetic and responded to it, and wanted to see more of that specifically. And it wasn't tied to before it would be because of a you know plot or actors or what it was based, on, or if it was a sequel or something. That's how I generally chose movies before, or if it was just playing on comedy central, I guess. Apparently, because of that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that was kind of a breakthrough. Um, in that term in those terms for me and I loved it and I also really really loved it it was definitely like I was like oh this is even more you know Rushmore than Rushmore like this is like him really getting to like build everything from the ground up because even Rushmore I think still exists at times in a real world and you can see like a real world responding to Max Fisher uh like he goes to a real high school it's like still like a very like aesthetic high school but he ends up going to like a real public high school where there are real kids (laughs) and like never again would that happen in a in a Wes Anderson movie uh starting with Brushmore it's you know from the ground up he gets to make it but yeah I think that's that's my story with that movie I still I still watch it all the time
1: I watched Point Break. Mm. Uh, So Point Break was one of the films that would have been on my list, but I saw it was on your list, so I took it out of my list. And I also watched Jumpin' Jack Flash. Which I don't think I had ever seen before. I thought I had, but I didn't remember any of it when I watched it. Okay, so, so I was like, maybe I haven't seen this. We've movie. talked
0: about point break a million times, and it's such like a crossover that I'm sure that we'll talk about it a million more times on this podcast. <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever get a chance to talk about jumping Jack Flash again though. So yeah. what let me what did you think?
1: This is a great movie. Yes. Like I think um so one of the things I was struck by from like the beginning of it is how this is just like a, a normal role for Whoopi Goldberg. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't feel like stunt casting. Um, it does like it, like you could swap out a lot of different actors for this role. And I like that because I think for a, a long time, especially I think after this, like she gets stuck in these like stereotyped roles where like she is cast because of her race mm. or because she's like a sassy black woman um and here i think she, it's still like in this like liminal space where she gets to just be a comedian oh yeah and like i really love that and from the very beginning like it's just hilarious like how she's just like brushing her hair just, like <laughs> in this like haphazard way She's just like going at it she's hilarious just, like, in this around. movie I also really was like oh of course PK loves this movie like the password is like a music <laughs> yeah thing.
0: yes and yeah. I was
1: like this you know like I'm surprised High Fidelity isn't on here well I think we already we talked already about talked it. about it yeah but like I know how much like music means to you and like films about music music culture um so I also got that in here I love when she's like listening to the song and trying to figure out the lyrics <laughs>
0: It's a scene
1: <laughs> because it also really just reminds me of like before you were able to like download songs when you like had to record them off the radio and you just like rewound and like wrote down the lyrics so you could like figure out what the heck they were saying because you weren't gonna like buy the CD with liner notes because you weren't a millionaire, um and like that's that's how you learn songs that's how you memorize them and so it it really I loved it it was it's a great film. it's a
0: great film and. Um, so it's very, you know, this is like the first one on my list. Cause it's the one that I watched the first in my life. It's a movie that my parents really loved and, um, they watched it a bunch and then I didn't watch it on my own at all until pretty recently, actually, uh, probably in the last five years, I watched it again on VHS, uh, when I found it at a thrift store or whatever and was like, Oh, like there are lines seared into my brain. Like so much of like Whoopi, of what Whoopi is doing in this movie, like made a huge impression on me. Like her physicality, her, the way that she just uh, delivers her, her dialogue. It was all like very, very still there and like right there, right at the surface. Um, so, you know, it kind of blew my mind and I immediately was like, this movie is great. And this was something, this is a moment that uh, was like shocking to me. And I'm so glad that you just validated me because I went to look and see what the critical consensus was. And it has like a 28% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was panned. It is like, it has a. And my feeling is like, how is this movie like, okay, then what? Then like Ghostbusters doesn't get to be good because this is as good. Right. There's no, it's not any worse then it's, yeah. it's, it's good actually as any of these other like 80s comedies. And I really like, I wonder like how much of it, you know, like I want a scholar, perhaps this is, a, perhaps this is a job for you, Diana. Like what role, <laughs> this is a
3: Diana yeah, job. what
0: role did like misogyny and racism play in like the reception of this movie, having, you know, like huh. Whoopi as the lead, a black woman lead, yeah. how many movies, how many comedies? had a black woman lead in, you know, 1986 or whatever. And a woman director. This is Penny Marshall's, I think, directorial debut. Um, It's a good movie. And there's no reason why it's not... I can't think of why it's not um, in the conversation with all these other 80s comedies, adventure comedies. Mm
1: -hmm. Especially because, like, talking about the opening, like, there were two films that came up for me, like, watching the opening scene. So one was... Back to the future. Big time. Because the film begins almost exactly like Back to the Future does with the alarm clock and like with the news playing in the background and she's like hidden under the sheets. And so Back to the Future is 1985. Jumping Jack Flash is 1986. But the other film that it reminds me of when she's like dancing around in front of the mirror. Oh, yeah. Mirror, here we go. Singing It's Adventures in Babysitting. Yep. yep. Um, which is like an iconic movie that has since like been kind of like readapted in the opening sequence of like To All the Boys I Loved Before or whatever um and so i feel like it like all of these films are kind of talking to one another Mm -hmm. in terms of like the genre um but i mean it's it's i would say it's definitely because it's like a black female lead but also i think because it's a black female lead in a role that like doesn't speak to that,
2: Mm.
1: like it's not about that which I think for an actor of color, that's great. They would love more roles like that. But like it's not canonical or it doesn't stay within like an actor of color's work if it's sure. like not about that's that. a good point. And then this is also like Ghost is 1990. Mm-hmm. Right, so here we're like, what four years after she like hits the motherlode with like this other role that's like so iconic and that she's known for. I do think and I've thought this for a while, like I think there will be like a reassessment of Whoopi's career. There'd
0: better be. Like at some point. Like,
1: because like her early stand stand-up yes. is just like so amazing. It's so groundbreaking. Um, and I, I don't think that she's gotten the credit she deserves as an actress.
0: And that about does it for this exploration of our formative films. I don't know about you, but I definitely feel closer to my co-host. In fact, making note to cancel the team-building exercise I had planned for us. Hope I can get the deposit back from an escape room. Thanks again to Filmstream's White's fellow, Kenneth Laster, for joining us and for gifting me with a new appreciation for Matthew Lillard. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review on whatever platform you use to listen. We're posting on Instagram about the films discussed here at Backrow Center Pod see you next month.
1: Macro Center is a podcast from Filmstreams, a nonprofit organization dedicated to enhancing the cultural environment of Omaha, Nebraska and surrounding areas through film. We operate two beautiful cinemas, the Ruth Sakolaaf Theatre in North downtown and the historic Dundee Theatre.
3: Film Streams receive support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Nebraska Arts Council. Our new release's programming is supported by the Douglas County Visitor Improvement Fund. We're also supported by thousands of Film Streams members. This is for you. You are not scared of anything. I don't Me? know. Me?
2: I'm scared of everything. I'm scared of what I saw. I'm scared of what I did, of who I am. And most of all, I'm scared of walking out of this room and never feeling the rest of my whole life way I feel when I'm with you.
3: Till next time, we'll see you in the best seats in the house, Back Row Center.